Hello! Thank you for joining us again for another edition of the 21st Rewrite. This week I wasn't really planning on doing an introduction, and at the last minute I've decided to record something for you. So let me just begin by saying we've seen downloads from many different places now. Michigan, South Carolina, various countries from Norway to Chile. So wherever you are in the world, we'd just like to say thank you for continuing to support us and... We really hope that the podcast is coming in useful to you. This is a podcast for story lovers and storytellers. And so if you have any suggestions or you would like us to consider a particular screenplay to a well-known film, you can always contact us on the website, the21strewrite.com, and we'll consider it. So this week's episode is on Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. And the chronology within the screenplay is reasonably complicated. It jumps forward and back and into memories within one of the characters' heads. And so for this particular episode, instead of going through the story chronologically ourselves, what we've chosen to do is focus on events, themes, and the main characters. And hopefully you'll find this discussion really enjoyable. So without further ado, here is our episode. Hello and welcome to the 21st Rewrite, the podcast about screenplays and the process of writing them. I'm William Coldwell, and I'm joined, as always, by my good friend and co-host, Alan Vasquez. And today we are going to be reviewing Charlie Kaufman's Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, uh, directed by Michelle Gondry and starring Jim Carrey and Kate Winslet. It is an amazing piece of work and won the original screenplay Oscar, and it's honestly one of the best screenplays I've ever read. Just simply the fact that there's a very original concept that doesn't feel like a gimmick, which is very tricky to do. And not just a great screenplay, but the way it was translated into film. I really feel like every single thing just sort of came together in a very perfect unison to make such a great film on a emotional level. It's always been my favorite film since I first saw it when I was 16, I think. Yeah, I think I saw it about the same age as mm -hmm. as you were. It made it made a huge impression on me at the time as well. Yeah. Often I hear people say, "Oh, I wish I could see this again for the first time with those fresh yes. eyes." And I certainly felt that way rewatching it. I knew what was coming and right. I still enjoy it, but there was there was something magical about the way this story unravels because there's a mystery behind it and right. the rules of the world the rules of the universe that they are operating in are revealed slowly and there are clues scattered throughout. So when you go back for a second watch or when you read the different versions of the screenplay, you get all of those extras. That's the great thing about this film and, and the story is that everything's so out of order and there's just so many details in the film that you can watch it so many different times and still find new elements, new details that you hadn't seen before because you're still kind of putting it as a puzzle together in your mind because it's not guiding you clearly. It's kind of giving you clues. And actually, I want to share, uh, I saw this interview of Charlie Kaufman and he was sort of explaining what he does that makes this so exciting for him when he's writing a script. And I'm going to just read the quote. I try to infuse my screenplays with enough information that upon repeated viewings, you can have a different experience. I try to keep it like a conversation with the audience. And you really do feel that, this ongoing 
mixture of ideas and character moments and it all feels very organic it doesn't feel too scattered either there's a certain structure as well and i think that's very hard to pull off especially with something like this a concept like this that's a very powerful idea i think the key theme of this story is about memory and forgetting and whether it is better to forget and what therefore are the personal costs of forgetting Right. And at the same time, there's also a theme of, are some people meant to be together? Is mm. the universe causing certain people to come mm. to each other through some sort of miracle or destiny or whatever you want to call it? Right. And the fact that even by trying to change this destiny or change who someone is meant to be with, they still find themselves revolving around each other again and again in this right. almost eternal loop okay yes so the idea that it's inevitable for two people to to connect and to meet and to two worlds colliding no matter how much you try to change that you're only postponing what's meant to happen it's sort of an idea that's definitely explored in this film which is great because it's one of those tale as old as time like there's that that sort of recurring theme and not just films but in books and philosophy and it's something that i think as humans we're constantly pondering the idea of fate and all of that stuff and it's explored in a very interesting kind of quirky and romantic way the original inspiration for this film came from a conversation michelle gondry was having with one of his friends right who was wondering how people would react if he sent out these messages saying that there was someone who they had once known and they had erased their memory of it. Yeah, it was meant to be an art piece, I think. Mm -hmm. And uh, Michelle took the idea to Charlie, and mm -hmm. they, they wrote the story together, but Charlie wrote the screenplay. But they had an ongoing conversation about the story, yeah. That must be a fantastic position to be in as a director to be able to commission oh, yeah. work from Charlie Kaufman. Oh my God, yes. And to have not only have Charlie right, but you your ideas are valid too. It was a, definitely a collaboration between the two. I believe there was a third person collaborating with them as well. So, But Charlie is the one that physically wrote the screenplay. Yeah, and I mean, this is coming off the back of Adaptation and being mm -hmm. John Malkovich, both films that have established a kind of brand identity for Charlie Kaufman, which is yes. that he is going to create interesting stories they might break the fourth wall they might be meta they might they might mm -hmm. use all kinds of interesting techniques that are very postmodern in in terms of how the structure of the story is written and everything like that and immediately with um with eternal sunshine in the very first draft we start off with a much bigger picture and then through the rewrites it gets more intimate yeah, it, it it gets narrowed down mm -hmm. in the rewrites to be more specific to Joel and Clementine yeah. and then the the immediate characters and their surroundings who are caught up in the um, Lacuna uh, project, which is mm -hmm. this business which erases people's memories. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think, you know, Charlie Kaufman is very good at writing this sort of like very brainy and intellectual films where you kind of do have to be very present and pay attention to all the different details that are happening you know being John Malkovich he also did I believe Human Nature with Michelle Gondry so all these scripts are very intellectual but I feel like with this film it's like 
a little bit more emotional than the other ones that he's previously written. I think just by the nature that it's a love story, it's a bit more emotional. Um, so it's that perfect blend of what he normally does and also have a lot of heart, which is new. Should we talk about the first draft and how that got changed? Or should we talk about how the film version actually begins? Maybe it's worth looking at the first draft and sharing that with yeah with the listener so that they understand where this story is really coming from. So right. it's originally thought up as exploring the themes, exploring the ideas that were raised by that idea for an art piece, mm-hmm. and then trying to set a story in that world where the possibility of memory erasure is an option to people. Yeah. In the same way that they can go into a doctor to have a mole removed from their skin, almost. It, they're they're yeah. treating it like that. It's the way it's described by the inventor of this process, who is Howard Mearswack. He explains that it's almost like a, a night of heavy drinking, that there's just certain memories that are going to right. be removed. It's not going to cause permanent brain damage. Yeah. But simply those memories won't be accessible anymore to, right. to the patient. And I really like the extra level of detail that Charlie added to that, which is the way the process works, which it's you start off with the most recent memory and you work yourself back because each memory has an emotional core. So when you erase that, that's really the root of the memory because the emotional connection is no longer there. And so working backwards is a much more efficient way and a much more of a guarantee that it's going to work. So I found that really interesting too. Mm -hmm. And the downside, and it's very interesting how this is all set up, but the downside of having that memory taken out, for most of the people who have been operated on, they find that they have this hollow emptiness in their life. They -hmm. feel that life is escaping them in some way. And Joel is introduced to us in that sense that he's saying that it's been two years and he can almost not remember anything of those last two years right. since his last relationship. And so he feels that he's in this certain depression. Mm-hmm. But in reality, what's happened is that with all of the bad memories have gone the good as well. Yeah, it must be very tricky because it's just the person itself. So you're not exactly forgetting those two years. You're just forgetting the person a huge part of those. A huge years, part of yeah. it. So that 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 obviously creates a, I guess, the hangover that he's experiencing when we mm-hmm. first meet him. But like you said, like the original draft was a bit different in terms of how it opened and how it finished. Everything in between is kind of more or less the same. The dialogues yeah. tweaked a little bit here and there. Some sequences are different, but the major difference is how the film open and how it ended yeah it's, it's like bookends so right. it's got this opening part and this closing part mm-hmm. which are both set 50 years in the future yes in a very futuristic new york mm-hmm. which yeah i can't even picture that in the film anymore but yes that was the original idea it shows that the theme of the story is more universal it's trying to bring in many different aspects of the the idea of how our culture or how our society might be affected by the existence of this mm. this process, this memory loss process. However, it's it's meant to intrigue us and make us think, oh, what happened all those years ago? But yeah. in reality, it didn't seem to be necessary to make the story work. It just seemed to be something that 
added on and maybe seem to be useful for creating a punch right at the end, but the the structure of the actual love story is so powerful, it's almost like we don't need it. We don't need it. That in itself kind of felt like a gimmick. It was too structured or too too polished there as a beginning and an end. Kind of see-through. So I think eventually they saw that, like you said, they don't need to have that in there to really explore the story of Joel and Clementine. It wasn't really... Because also the other person that it centered in the beginning is it's Mary. You know, it's, we have this older lady who has this manuscript and it's at the very end that we we learned that that's actually Mary in the future. And then we meet an old Clementine. And so it, it, it kind of like starts to pull away from what the the real story is. So I'm, I'm yeah, I'm good that they removed that. But I found that interesting. One thing that I did find intriguing about the, that original opening and ending was that Clementine actually had gone in to erase Joel 15 times mm-hmm. in the span of 50 years. So I found that, part interesting yeah just to remind the listener as well mary is the character played by kirsten dunst yes who works in the memory loss facility Mm -hmm. lacuna yep her own experiences are going to be revealed throughout the rest of the story as well Mm -hmm. and how they tie into the story of joel and clementine but really they they get it down to about six characters so it's joel who is jim carrey Mm mm-hmm Clementine, played by Kate Winslet. Stan, played by Mark Ruffalo. Patrick, played by Elijah Wood. Mary, played by Kirsten Dunst. And these three all work at the same clinic. Yes. And then there's Howard, who invented the process and is kind of the head of the clinic. Yeah, played by Tom Wilkinson. Yes, those are our core core characters, for sure. Mm -hmm. And And they're more interlinked than you might imagine. It's not just Joel and Clementine. Right, having this procedure done, and then the B story of the clinic—they're all linked together. The the two storylines get twisted together. It's through Joel that we get to know these characters, because they're all doing the procedure on him. So that was kind of our entryway into these minor characters, but they're linked as well. And I think the character of Mary is a really important one too, like you said, because we meet her as just another supporting character, and she's just kind of. Not background, but, you know, it doesn't feel like she's got much to do until about halfway through we start to realize that, or it's revealed that she actually had that procedure done and she had this connection with Mm -hmm. Howard. And because of that, she actually triggers the unfolding events towards the end. Yeah, I, I think she comes in as the lamb to be slaughtered to answer that question of what is the personal cost of forgetting going to be. Yes. Yeah. She is she's almost the innocent in in right. the story. With Joel and Clementine it, it's something to do with their clash as a couple mm-hmm. and this being an extreme reaction to it mm-hmm. to their their breakup to their difficulties as a couple. But Mary's character is more innocent she is this this lamb who is basically taking the worst of what happens and and the story is kind of toned down from the original first draft yeah, where yeah. she's actually had an abortion and mm-hmm. all this stuff. And mm-hmm. that gets removed a little bit in the final version so that we can just focus on Joel Clementine and Mary's um, role as the person who's going to reveal 
that they had had this procedure done is simply just kind of out of frustration that it's been done to herself. Right. Kirsten Dunst does such a powerful job in this, actually. At the end, when it all is revealed to her, you can really see that sort of horror of realizing that you don't remember such an important... I mean, I, 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 this was the first time that I actually put myself in, in those shoes. Like, how would I react if I just learned that a big part of my life happened and I was and now I don't remember any of it and, mm-hmm. and how that would feel? So you can understand where she's coming from and, and kind of sending out those letters to everybody and sort of undoing all of Dr. Mirswiak's work. And what I noticed with the first draft is that I felt the characters were pulled along a little bit too much mm-hmm. by the events that needed to happen. And mm. in the final version, the characters have been established well enough to understand why things are happening. So Joel in particular seems to simply be dragged by some sort of mysterious force within himself out to the beach, and he's wandering around and feeling lost. And then when Clementine approaches him, he's kind of swept up by her and just goes with her. But he's he's one of those characters that we often complain about, which is this male character who simply has this woman throwing herself at him, and he's not really doing anything to... Mm. He's just answering in simple yeses and nos right and i don't know and i'm not so interesting right which is kind of inexplicable by the time we get to the final version of the screenplay we're introduced directly to joel so there's none of this exposition there's none of this stuff in the future and it's joel on the spur of the moment decides to take the day off work yeah and go to the beach yeah but he's doing it because it seems he's very unhappy with where his life is he's Mm. unhappy with his work and so he's trying to take a day off it's interesting that in the first draft all of this stuff is set in he's writing his diary and it's in 2006 and 2004 Mm -hmm. and then this one actually goes back to 2001 so it establishes it firmly in a past that we can imagine as opposed to a speculative even if it's just a year or two down the line it's not a speculative future they decided to write it in their own time Mm -hmm. and the time that they were writing it that charlie was writing it also one of the things the details that i liked is that the reason why he's at that beach is deep in his subconscious because at that point he had already done the procedure and at the very end of that procedure when he's trying to save clementine or trying to keep her memory at the very end she tells him meet me in Montauk. So there's that sort of suggestion that somehow that information is deep in his subconscious and that mm-hmm. sort of impulse was maybe not perhaps that impulsive. Absolutely, yeah. It's it's very clear by the end that it wasn't just an impulse. Mm-hmm. But as an audience, we need to be on board with the story from the very beginning. And if they're only going to be able to reveal certain things at the end, we need the character to be acting in a believable manner right? for the beginning as well. Otherwise, mm-hmm. we're going to to turn off and say, well, that didn't make any sense to me. And we learn a lot of him within the first 10 minutes. I think we really get who this guy is. Mm-hmm. And in the script, it's very clear. You know, it talks a lot about this man who's self-conscious and, you know, he's, he's very introverted. He doesn't really express himself too much and in the film that's all said with 
Jim Carrey's brilliant performance and the dialogue in his head. Mm-hmm. You the know, voiceover. Yeah. His commenting on how it's unusual for him to be that impulsive to just all of a sudden skip work and go on this train and end up at this beach and his commentary on when he first sees Clementine and how he all of a sudden is really nervous and can't really talk to her. So, yeah, I think we really get a gist of who this guy is from from the very beginning. There's an interesting use of color written in right from the very beginning as well. And the screenplay mentions that things are almost black and white, except for single bits of color. In in the beginning, it's meant to be a red, heart-shaped box. Yeah. And this happens within the film as well. Clementine's bright orange hoodie and yeah. and the stuff that she's wearing, their colors stand out in this very muted yeah. environment. And that is, that's meant to give us a sense of how Joel is feeling right. inwardly. And this is, this is actually, it looks like the latest uh, investigations into this. Mm-hmm psychological studies are suggesting that people really do see less color when they're depressed. Interesting. So when people that have said, sense. oh, it's like, I felt like I just felt so awful. It was like my I was living life in black and white. There is a link between happiness and the vibrancy of colors, mm. which is really fascinating, I thought. That makes sense. And uh, yeah, it's described as very gray, the whole beginning. And in a, in a way, Clementine's character is where the colors at. you know, she's not just the, the sweater, but her constant changing hair color. Uh, every time she's in the scene, there seems to be just more color in general and the set design and the props and everything around her is very colorful, which is a contrast to him who's, yeah, very gray. Yeah, he's regularly wearing browns, dark greens, neutral colors. Yeah, exactly. that like very dark green beanie that he has. No, he's definitely more subdued. And that is definitely a reflection of who these two characters are. She's kind of the opposite of him in a way. She's really, I don't want to say neurotic, but she's kind of neurotic. She's definitely yeah, got her, a... Her colors are not a sense that she's a ball of happiness. She's far no, from it, but it is no. a sense of how much she keep, how much each of these two characters keep within themselves and how much they express to the outer world so when she is angry when she is sad when she is feeling any kind of emotion she lets it out yeah so that everyone has to hear about it whereas yeah. he keeps it in and suffers and he's doing that to himself correct he's yeah. not sharing enough about what's going on in his life and she's kind of pushing her feelings onto everybody so it's like this Two extremes, mm-hmm. for sure. And so opposites attract, but mm-hmm. their relationship will be... We see as as the story progresses how many of the memories that they wanted to forget that led them to the procedure to forget each other are to do with these big arguments that have come because one of them is at the other extreme and refusing to compromise. Yeah. And also towards the latter memories, which in the storytelling is the first scenes that we get which is like the last part of their relationship when things are just at their worst you really do get a sense of why they're not working out and it's because there's just it's all observations that we get through joel when they're at that chinese restaurant and he's like are we one of those old boring couples who just sit here and have nothing else to say to each other 
and she kind of proves her, his point. You know, she starts drinking too much and she starts complaining about the soap in the bathroom that he leaves his hair on and, and just these little tiny... Uh, and you do see that they're bored with each other at that point and then later she's talking about wanting to have a baby and she he says that's not the best idea which offends her and she overreacts. So it's, just, it's at that point where we see a lot of couples who have been together for a long time where they've just kind of grown complacent and, and it's just not really going anywhere. And I think that's such a relatable, rare thing to see in a sort of romantic type of film like this where you don't really see those little details of why a, a relationship's not working, mm. which I found that was really, really cool. The fact that we access their story through memory is a very powerful thing mm -hmm. as well because it allows Joe to revisit experiences he's had and see them in a new light and see where he's coming up against Clementine in one scenario and when it was kind of his fault where where he was responsible and he's seeing that in a new light, seeing his own actions from a removed perspective. Right. He realizes what he could have done, what he could have changed. And the worst part about all of this learning that's going on is that it's going to disappear. Yeah, This momentary experience he's going to have over that one night of having his memory erased is then also taking away his potential for growth as a result of, of what he learns. Yeah, and, and honestly, that, that is the ultimate question that comes at the very end. When I first saw it, you know, it's that question you ask yourself, would I erase the painful parts of my, my life? Would I erase mm -hmm. someone that brought me so much pain? And... I remember just thinking automatically for me, it was no, I wouldn't because then I wouldn't be in the place I am now. And I feel like, like you were saying, we all grow from the experiences that don't go well. And that's why this first draft ending where it's revealed 50 years later, they've erased each other 15 times. Mm -hmm. That all makes sense because we realize, well, they never got the chance to learn from their mistakes. By, by removing those memories, they ended up repeating the same patterns. Right. Oh, that's great insight. Mm. Absolutely. Yeah, because, you know, I was thinking about it when I saw it this time, because I know the movie so well. I was just thinking, I was trying to piece it together how it all looked chronologically. Mm -hmm. You know, where was everything that I was watching in chronological order? And I was thinking, wow, it wasn't like they re-met almost right away. You know, his procedure was done, and then I think it was... The way I calculated it was like maybe two days that it's, they met it's again. It's changed. The first draft, I believe, is two weeks apart. Yeah. Which made sense because of this infiltration of Patrick, which is mm -hmm. Elijah Wood's character, into Clementine's life and him shape-shifting, trying to mimic yeah. who Joel was in order to... to what a weirdo, that character, he's, by he's the way. A, oh, my God. He's a great uh, <laughs> snake-like character. Yes. That was to make just a, a creepy dude, yeah. The rivalry, the it, it adds a lot of tension and a lot of it 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 gives us a reason to root more for Joel throughout the yeah. story. Because oh, we sure. see that he's a genuine person as opposed to someone who's being fake. Yeah. And that that's a very important part of why we start to emphasize with Joel. Just what I was saying about the timeline. Mm-hmm. I believe he took it down from two weeks to three days after the procedure. Mm-hmm. And so we get a story that's structured either pre-procedure or post. Uh, right. Pre-memory loss or post-memory loss. Right. 
and they those two storylines take place about three days apart, minus all of the memories, which mainly take place in Joel's head and mm-hmm. stretch all the way back to his childhood. Right. So the timeline is very difficult. And then there's another level for people who haven't read the screenplay that the editing of this film changes the order of the events quite significantly at times. Mm-hmm. The editing is definitely worth talking about because there was an interview with the editor who is a woman named Valdis Oscar Dottir, mm-hmm. who is an Icelandic film editor. And one thing she said about it, she said it was a very difficult production. She said she's a very, very stubborn person and she wasn't willing to listen to suggestions that Michelle was making unless she thought they were brilliant. And apparently he was having some creative differences with her because he was trying to talk to her while she was working and she didn't want to listen to him while she was focusing on the task at hand. And he was getting frustrated and talking to the producer about her. And so there's... There was a lot of frustration Mm. in getting this final piece to come out the way that they both agreed upon, which this is one of the best films ever made. So the, and the editing is a huge part of it. So there's nothing to complain about with the editing itself. But what is interesting from a writing perspective and the fact that Charlie Kaufman had designed the order of the events so intricately. Mm-hmm. to link into each other in a certain specific way. Valdis said afterwards that if the story is good, I forget about the script when I get into the editing room. It's what I get into the computer that counts. Usually I don't read the script again. Mm. And to me, that's a very interesting perspective to say that you've read it once, you know what the story is meant to be, and you're not going to refer to the script again. Yeah, that is a bold move. Yeah, that is very bold. Especially on such a complicated story as this one. And I still think the editing worked really well. I still think that the way that the scenes intersect with each other and you'll have this, you have this interference from the outside world while Joel is having his memory erased and mm-hmm. the points where he overhears what the other characters are saying about him, about Patrick and Clementine, these kind of things that are then seeping into his unconscious dreamlike state but it's not the order that charlie coffin had written for the film Mm. so that's it's just worth knowing as you watch it and read it alongside the screenplay that those scenes aren't going to match up right yeah there's there's few differences but i think overall the, the the flow of what charlie was kind of projecting in his script is very much in the edit as well and Mm -hmm. I think there were certain things that she couldn't probably cut differently because, like you say, there's certain points where Joel is hearing certain things and obviously those certain things had to be happening simultaneously. So there were mm. almost like no no choice, but like that is the way that's going to have to be edited. Um, which is interesting though. Like I feel, I mean, that is a very bold move. Like an editor, you must have really memorize the story mm. yeah I'm, I'm not saying there's a right or a wrong way right, about yeah. this but i'm just mentioning that it's fascinating from the perspective of a writer to consider that you have other elements to contend with aside from just your own structure of the story yeah. and getting the script to work brilliantly 
then you have to contend with a director and producers and an editor. And if those people don't agree, things can happen to the story that you never intended at the beginning. There's a lot of chefs in the kitchen by the end of a mm -hmm. film production, for sure. And I think at the end, everyone is just wanting to do the best product. And sometimes that everyone's got a different idea of going about it. So sometimes that is a hindrance, but it, I feel like it also, in this case, is probably worked well, you know, because... It certainly it, worked out brilliantly. Yeah. We, we love the final version of the film. Oh, yeah, for sure. I think, you know, sometimes different perspectives makes the other person look at it differently and they explore the ideas more. Or they explore... I can... This is all speculation, but based, like you say, on the product, I can only imagine that's the way it went with everyone just really putting the story as a priority rather than everyone's individual ideas, which is the way it should be. Great. Uh, let's talk about Clementine now, as we've we've talked a bit Clementine. more about yes. Joel. It seems that the biggest problems in Clementine's life seem to be emotional and regulating how her behavior is. And Joel doesn't seem to have much control over that. And there are aspects of her behavior that start to worry him. Yeah. May maybe are going too far for him, I think, in the case where she drives home drunk and mm -hmm. damages his car door. He's not just saying it's irresponsible that you did that, but it's irresponsible you could have hurt someone, you could have killed someone if you're right. drinking and driving, that right. kind of thing. And she's unwilling to listen to that. She's unwilling to accept that there might be something she needs to dial back a bit or, or try to change. Yeah, she's a very emotional person. And like we mentioned earlier, her emotions are just really big. And she is not a very filtered person. Like she has a very short fuse and anything can set her off. She can go from being sweet and loving from one second and then just completely triggered by something he says. One of my favorite moments is when it's one of the later memories. So one of the first things we see is they're in bed and, you know, she's kind of just being vulnerable with him and sharing and she wants him to share too and she said and he says constantly talking isn't communication <laughs> and that completely kills the moment she gets triggered and she you know we see that what was almost a potentially very beautiful moment ruined by something he said and we, but we see how she overreacts a lot and i think that's one of her weaknesses as a as a human, as a character, is that she doesn't have the emotional intelligence to to dial it back or to be reasonable with, with how she's feeling. She just feels a certain type of way. And, and, and she's open about it. I think we see that in her relationship with Patrick as well. You know, she's constantly breaking down and she doesn't feel embarrassed that she just met this guy and she's just falling apart in front of him. Uh, but on the flip side of that, when she's positive she is just the most wonderful person which is i think what drew joel to her the fact that she has this brightness this joy this sort of almost, something he's missing as well yeah, most of the time exactly yeah. almost this kid-like wonder mm -hmm. that she has and we see a lot of that manifest in the later sequences when they both decide that they're going to try to like go against the the, the procedure when they're trying to hide from the 
the operators and you know they're kind of like on this adventure and and she's just kind of like with them and she almost feels like a kid like oh what if we try this and what if we try that let's mm. hide me here hide me there that was an important rewrite i i noticed in the first draft that actually joel tries to hide clementine in in his memory and that in the rewrites of it it's her that suggests it to him and i really like the idea that this it's obviously not the real person it's right. it's an version of her that exists in his imagination mm-hmm. and there's a sense that aspects of his his own personality which he's suppressed right then find expression through clementine the vision of clementine inside his mind it's it's a complicated mm. world that we're working in with with this screenplay so mm-hmm. I hope everyone is willing to <laughs> to listen through this, but that is the idea that yeah. essentially there is a version of Clementine in his head that is made up from his own memories of her. Right. And then also when she talks and she does something that isn't part of his own memory, where is that coming from? It's coming from something he's inventing, something yeah. that is actually part of his own self, part of his own imagination and finds expression through this right clementine that exists within him and i think that's a really really interesting point when it comes to answering that question of what is the cost of losing these memories mm. he's starting to lose that part that of had himself. accompanied him yeah for so yes. long having that enjoyment mm. of life and these huge arguments that tested him mm-hmm. and pushed him and made him define who he was suddenly that gets extracted and he finds himself on this beach writing in a journal with two years worth of pages pulled out unable right. to remember anything and thinking he's lost that's thinking he's yeah. alone he's yeah. destined to be alone that's a really cool insight i hadn't really thought it that deeply and that he is losing that part of himself uh, in the sense that the clementine that's along with him on that specific journey of hiding is really him and that's just him speaking to himself and 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 even though that is briefly mentioned or the idea is introduced in the sequence where he decides he wants to not go through the procedure it's when he realizes actually i don't want this and he tries to talk to dr mirisriak and tells him like you know i don't want this done and then he's like well there's nothing i can do about it i'm you you know yeah. what do you want me to do i'm you it's almost like he's on a hallucinogenic at that point yeah, it's where a, he's he's like i want this to stop and it's it's, it's an like, ongoing well, loop i'm sorry you you can't stop <laughs> the drugs in your system now you're going to have to wait it out buddy <laughs> honestly yeah it's like an lsd trip yeah. like the whole film it plays out plays out like a psychedelic mm-hmm. trip which is why i love it so much probably and i think that him that idea is introduced in that sequence with dr mirswiak and so yeah so applying that to and we're aware of that too. We're never thinking like that's the real Clementine. We just you know, it's it's really him just holding on to to that to that dynamic and not wanting to lose that. Now that I think about it, that must have been really kind of a challenge for Kate Winslet. She did great, you know, to be playing the real Clementine and then having to play the version of Joel's Clementine. So but she did wonderful yeah I, whoever was the script supervisor on this as well oh enormous my amount goodness, of work yes yeah figuring out which scene is which where is this happening in the timeline is yep. this happening in the real world or the imaginary world and can we keep 
the actors on board and acting in accordance because yeah. Jim Carrey himself has to play versions of Joel who are younger and yep. are just acted by him in person but it's him remembering something that happened when he was two and when he was right. five right there's stuff that's happening in the real world there's very similar scenes where he's in the office talking to Howard, for example, and yeah. one of those versions is real, one of them is a dream. It's so many, so many layers. So many different versions. And I just love the idea that since we're going back into that discussion of him when he was a kid and having to act out like he's a kid and feeling all those like feelings that you get when you're a child. And I think at one point he mentions that you know, that very strange, strong desire of wanting to be held by his mother mm, and yeah, the, how safe he feels I being love that, bathed yeah, in the how, sink. and How Charlie Kaufman managed to... I imagine he must have a big whiteboard or something oh, and yeah. he must write in the middle memory and then think, well, what, are mem what, what kind of memories do people have? Yes. He's explored all of these aspects, all of these different areas that the story could go into and then selected the scenes that work best for expressing. Yeah. And it, it becomes a thriller as well. There is a point where it is a thriller where there's mm -hmm. this sense that Joel wants to back out of it. Will he be able to wake up? Will he be able to hide Clementine somewhere in his memory that she's not meant to be? There's all these different solutions to yeah. reversing the process that keep coming up and then the opposite happens. The challenges continue to grow and grow right. because he's being faced by an enemy that he can't really defeat. He's he's under sedation and he's yeah. he's got people inside his very mind, computer yeah. inside his mind, essentially. Yeah, I mean, on paper, it sounds kind of wacky, like all these mm -hmm. different twists and turns and uh, a mixture of different genres, like you say. At one point, it does feel like a thriller. In the beginning, there's thriller uh vibes when he sees he's being followed by a van like if it's your mm. first time watching it at that point you're thinking like this is this feels like a thriller type that thing. was also a scene that came up very early on in mm -hmm. the in the screenplay versions and then gets pushed out to after the because even the right. opening credits are quite late into the movie yeah and it's pushed out after those yeah so there's a lot more build up a lot more setup it's it's very slow and grounded in the real world mm-hmm until we're secure with the characters. Yes. And I think that was very good in terms of pacing, in terms of yeah. getting us on board. Like I said, in, in that first draft, we're just swept along and she's inexplicably kind of following him and trying to connect with him, invites him up to her apartment for a drink and all of that stuff. And yes. then it all makes more sense by the time the final screenplay was written and then after the editing process took place, there is a reason for him making all of those decisions at least it is because he he says it himself he feels insecure he falls in love with the first person who pays any attention to him he feels like he's lost two years of his life that he's going to end up going back to naomi who has dropped from from the final film yeah. in the end there are there are plenty of scenes with naomi yeah through the first draft then it gets narrowed down a bit yeah. which were filmed and, yeah but they were just cut out. That's uh, true. Yeah. Which I think was the best move. But yes, uh, you saying that is very interesting because it's something I noticed too. Because this time I'm watching it like super like a hawk this time. I'm like catching everything. And we don't get into that realm of like not traditional uh, storytelling until 
I don't know, like the past the twenty minute mark or somewhere around there, because we are grounded now in these two characters, and I think that's the reason why it works is because you're not just confused right off the bat. You had time to digest who these characters are, so you're a little bit more invested instead of just like, well, you know, what kind of ride is this? Instead、mm-hmm. of wondering that, you're just more focused on the relationship and the story sort of unfolding that way. And it takes its time before it gets into like the really wacky sequences、mm-hmm. where, you know, the memories start disappearing. Like it really builds up. So I think that was a brilliant、it's, way of doing it. It's definitely a different experience. Reading the first draft, I think it was around page sixty or seventy、mm-hmm. that that flow started to come to me. That I just started reading page after page, and I was invested in the story. Right. Whereas on the screen. That happens much sooner. Yeah, that we get invested. That we we want to see what's going to happen. Things, and I think it is easier in the visual medium to yeah to suggest things that will spark our attention than when it's on the page. I feel that Charlie Kaufman's way of writing doesn't necessarily lend itself to drawing in the reader too much. He's he's already coming up with. So many good pieces of dialogue and so many good ideas for scenes. It would be hard to then <laughs>、yeah. expect even more of him of drawing us in as as readers. But some screenwriters do that, and and some don't. And、yeah. there's a sense of how much you're going to stand off it. I imagine that this again, it was written with a project in mind. Anyway, there were elements of it that he could simply describe to Michelle Gondry or whoever he needed to. And that's that's fine. If I think if someone were to try and write another Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, they'd really need to tell us why they why we need to be invested from page one. Yeah, that was something I absolutely agree with, and something I did notice is the fact that the script is harder to follow. Obviously, I was able to follow. We were able to follow because we've seen the film. But had I not seen the film. I would have been quite. I would have not confused, but I would definitely would have had some, a lot more questions about certain things.、Uh, I think because it is a visual medium, it's easier to sort of like guide the audience. And the way he has it written, it's almost like you do need to sort of sit down with a paper and kind of like I can only imagine for the people involved, you know, the the actors, because Michelle probably was in that whole story. Uh, story session, so he probably knew exactly what was going on in the script. But for the actors, I can imagine it's almost like you have to be a forensic scientist to try to sort of decipher what their journey is as characters, too. Yeah, the the only character I think we do get that very clearly demonstrated right from the beginning is with Mary. That he he mentions quite early on, as soon as she sees Howard in the office,、mm-hmm. he mentions she's clearly in love with him. Oh yeah, and that is that is drawn to our attention through the text. It's not drawn to our attention through any dialogue or any of any scene designed to show us that she loves him. It's just simply stated, right? And then we realize in the visual version that's going to have to be inferred by by glances, by smiles, by lingering on on words, whatever it's going to be, but. Different subtleties. It's、yeah. definitely going to be very subtle, and、yeah. I think that works because it's meant to be unconscious as well. Yeah, yeah, and 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 when you get really good actors, it's easy to do that. I think they 
that it didn't feel like it came out of nowhere. That scene where it's revealed that she, you know, she's in love with him. We kind of been suspecting based on certain things she said. Uh, I think in this actual script, it says at one point, Stan point blank asked her, you're in love with him, aren't you? And she, I think it's written something like, oh yeah, she feels caught, but she answers no. You know, uh, so it's very, very obvious in the script. And in the film, it's it's a little bit more... It's funny, too. That whole sequence where they're smoking and they're stoned and they're, you know, the boss comes over. Like, that whole... I love how the humor is a constant presence in the film. It's mm-hmm. not a dark piece. It feels a little dark at times, but it never shies away from just being really funny, too, which is what something that I really appreciate about the film. And I think that sequence is a, a especially a, a good blend of humor and also just like this raw emotion of the situation of her being in love with with this man who she can't have and also showcasing the repercussions of what they're doing you know so it's all of those ingredients combine into a couple scenes and that's the work of a master the fact that he's able to have all those elements and it feels organic it's yeah it's brilliant this is a company which is in dire need of a hr department um, <laughs> yes. Yeah. So we've got the boss sleeping with the receptionist oh and my God, then erasing her memory. The we, all... have, we have Patrick stealing from one of the clients and then stealing her panties and then pursuing her and <laughs> and taking the role of her ex boyfriend. Yeah, it's weird. And then Stan and Mary are sleeping with each other as well. Yeah. And Stan is aware of everything that Patrick's doing. So it's definitely a very messed up company that really needs uh, a few yeah a few basic uh, common <laughs> principles to adhere to although i do feel like uh, all those scenarios you probably find in a bunch of companies <laughs> um you know it doesn't uh, it doesn't feel too sci-fi this no. no it feels definitely grounded in the real world with a bit yeah. of sci-fi fun tagged on top which is something that i i wanted to mention earlier about lacuna is the fact that you know, they could have gone the route of like this futuristic lab and like, you know, these sort of like glass walls or whatever. No, it's a dodgy startup. Yeah. That's what it is. It's yeah. like, a, you know, the dentist down the corner in like yeah. some shady part of town. Like it, it feels very New York office, yeah. <laughs> normal dentist appointment. Like, I love that. I think mm-hmm. that's using retro technology to... I mean, I think that was a brilliant idea too. And th- that would also create this conflict with this... Uh this other aspect of the story which was meant to take place 50 years in the future and be so Mm, futuristic yeah right this feels so uh rushed so everything's just thrown together when they go to joe's house they've got this really old-fashioned computer set up and and an old laptop and everything and even for 2004 that seemed dated oh yeah i remember Uh, watching that yeah. Uh, and being like, why are they? So it looked using... like they didn't have much money. They, you know, right. they've got this van that they're driving around town. That it's yeah. not this huge company that is going to. It's not even well known. It seems no. that people. No. It, and that would make sense. How many people would be willing to go, and be a client of this yep. business? At one point, Joel's in the waiting room, and there's a woman next to him, and she's got something that says Buster on it, and it, it looks like she's got all of her. <laughs> The it's stuff for her, her pet, dog, yeah. right? Or her pets, yeah. yeah. And so it there's a sense that people are erasing not just romantic relationships, but other areas of their life where they feel they want to figure out 
it would be better to lose the pain and not right. remember it. Um, yeah. Yeah. And I think uh, had they gone the super futuristic route, it would have invited more questions. Like, why isn't the government regulating this? And like, mm -hmm. where is like, what do you know what I mean? Like it, 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 it invites less questions that way and keeps you centered on Joel and Clementine as opposed to Lacuna. Yeah. Even yeah. the characters who are affected by it struggle to believe it's even a real thing when they find out about it. When, yeah. Yeah. When when Joel first hears the tape of Clementine talking, which is sent to her by Mary at the end, he thinks it's some sort of sick prank mm -hmm. until he gets home and finds one for himself as well. There's a right. sense that this kind of thing can't be real. And we, we get to explore that aspect of it with the characters of his two friends who are called Rob and Carrie. Mm, that is Does correct. It? Yeah. Robin Carey. I remember because yeah. he says uh, Mama Carey's child. Yeah. And she's trying to help out Joel. Yeah. Rob is played brilliantly by David Cross yes. in a wonderful, I guess you could only call it a cameo role, but it's he's fantastic. Yeah. It's this, uh, this pothead who's yeah. building birdhouses and just <laughs> annoying his wife. <laughs> but, but when it comes down to yes. it, when it comes down to it, they're contesting over whether it's ethical or not to tell him that they've mm, that yes. they've been informed mm -hmm. to never mention Clementine to him again. Right. It explains the behavior that he's so concerned about at this point. His memory hasn't been wiped. So he's just seen Clementine act like she doesn't know him. And that's it. And I do like that Rob fights over that. He thinks it's worth fighting about. Yeah. Worth, worth the argument with his wife to to break this this news to him that that's what's happened that yeah she has somehow removed him from her memory so there's no going back there's no convincing her you're not even meant to approach her and talk about him ever again yeah and i really do like that yeah it kind of puts that action that pushes joel to actually do the procedure himself you know because who knows how it would have played out had he not found out or had Rob not told him that. Uh, so yeah, that that's also a motivation to get the story started as well. It's interesting to think about traditional story structure in a way with this idea of the traditional being the Joseph Campbell style. Mm. So starting in the real world and then going into the opposite world. And that really is, if there is a moment like that of crossing the threshold in this film, it is when Joel discovers that the memory loss option exists and he goes for it himself. That's yeah. when he enters into the opposite world. But it's way more interesting than most concepts where we've seen on screen yeah. before. But I do think it kind of does follow the hero's journey. Like you say, you know, you, you meet Joel in normal life and then um, I'm just thinking just flow-wise and then he... It's just hard to trace because it's not chronologically how right. you would expect it. It's it's all chopped up and it's you almost have to piece it back together. Exactly. But as yeah. a writer, you can write this in the way that you need to write it and then chop it up. Oh, Yeah. And, and and even the way it's edited, there is still that flow of the hero's journey. You know, he goes into he goes into Oz. He goes into this world where your minds can be erased, and he meets the wizard, who is Doctor Mirswiak, and 
you know, who we find as like a guidance or a sort of wise man who later it turns out not so much. Mm -hmm. uh, and so, yeah, and you know, I think it follows a very similar structure, but like you're saying, it's just organized in a way where you don't, it's not obvious and yeah. it feels different. And so just to draw attention to some of those aspects, Patrick, for example, as the shapeshifter, as the rival, mm -hmm. impossible to pin down, impossible to fight head on. But there's a scene, for example, where when Patrick is in his house and he asks Stan, who do you think is more handsome, him or me? All right. And that's when you really, you can really see this rivalry building. But what Joel has that Patrick doesn't have is authenticity. Mm. He, he's not trying to be someone else. He is Joel. That's all he is. Whereas Patrick is trying to mimic who Joel was in order to win over Clementine. And right. there's some sort of second sense almost within her that when he's trying to imitate Joel, it something rings yeah. wrong to her and she gets scared and anxious. And that's I like that. a big part of her breakdown yep. is actually that there's someone who's imitating things in a way that doesn't fit who they really are. And that probably is that case of constant deja vu of like I, I've, I've heard this before like you know that mm. feeling of it's happening too much you know and I think that probably adds to the sort of chaos that she's experiencing emotionally. Howard as well is a character where the costs of trying to trying to manipulate the world yeah. really comes back into play because Howard's story is that he founded this company Mary was the receptionist there for a for over a year and he had an affair with her and then convinced her to erase her mind to forget him. But he didn't do the same procedure. Mm. So he's been living with her working at the front desk of his office right, and interacting with her every day. But having had this history with her that she no longer is capable of remembering, there is something wrong in that dynamic, isn't there? In, in yes. the fact that he doesn't have to suffer, but she does. Yes, I agree with that. That doesn't seem fair. Mm. And it's almost like she, it's almost like a power thing. Like he's got the information. So in a way that kind of probably makes him feel more safe and more secure, but at the expense of her, mm -hmm. you know. So I, yeah, that, that definitely doesn't seem right. And again, it doesn't become sinister until we actually think about it, until we actually look into it and think, yeah. whoa, this is really sinister. What, what he's doing isn't what the company itself might be projecting. Oh, you'll be free of all the painful memories. That's not what's really happening. Right. There is a cost. And yeah. the founder is seeing it every single day, what that cost is going to be. Mm -hmm. And still continuing with this, offering it to people, making money off it, profiting from it. And you can tell the way that Tom Wilkinson plays them. There's a... a a level of, I think, probably guilt that he, Absolutely. That he projects, guilt, yeah. you know, and that scene really comes across when he is called to help out with the procedure. So this is when Joel starts to fight against it. And because Stan was so distracted having sex with Mary, the whole thing kind of short-circuited or something. And so he had to call. Well, it's uh, just that Joel was going to do this anyway, but I think the fact that the computer wasn't being monitored gives Joel more of a chance. Yeah, you know, he had the upper Stan hand. Has suddenly lost right. where he's meant to even be looking. But again, this is yeah. this is something that we only need to know 
the vague mechanics of it and treat it like something else. At like no point here, yeah. We d- in reality, this is a concept that can't exist as far as we know. So yeah, at no point you're asking for specifics. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so yeah, so when the doctor comes in and we have that whole scene with how he's reacting to Mary's um, sort of flirting with him, how he reacts to her to her approach to him kind of gives away that he there's a level of guilt there there's a level of of regret maybe and nonetheless he still gives in a little bit enough to uh get him caught with his wife and the truth unfolds yeah he he allows it to happen and that is emphasized by the fact that he allows stan to leave if he didn't want to Mm. risk having that happen again he could have kept stan around and kept the environment professional but by allowing stan to go outside and then being together with her basically alone because joel is unconscious yeah that was where the it was obvious that he was willing to go back into that mistake again and in the script it's a bit more elaborate what ends up happening between the two of them in that moment of starting to get undressed i think in the script it goes into detail that they start uh undressing and they lie in next to joel you know mm. there's a bit of that but in the in the film it is we just see them from far away that they yeah, she it, starts undressing it could have been driven by location as well or just the sense that when you're actually in the real world and you need someone to be in an apartment building and you need the wife outside to yeah. be able to see them it wouldn't make sense if they were lying down because she then couldn't see through the window that's true or kirsten dunst might not have wanted to do that scene with Paul <laughs> Wilkinson, which i can see <laughs> i don't know but anyways it, it, it worked i think one of the things that really stands out to me mm-hmm. on this this latest rewatch i don't know how many times i've seen this film in my life but uh one thing is this sense that this removal of memory as a form of death. There's this constant encroachment upon mm. Joel and his sense of self. And you really feel like it is a, a form of death, what is happening here. It's the erasure of a person from his memory. It's not as simple as them not existing. It's as if, it's as if Clementine has to die for him. He has to say these last goodbyes to her. And I think that's where the emotional punch of the film really mm-hmm. comes from and why the ending didn't need to try and make it a, a high concept ending. Yeah. It just became about what was the personal cost to Joel of losing his memories of Clementine. Yeah. And at that point, by the time we see them again and they're, they've at this point are listening to each other's tapes and listening to what each other has to say about the one another I think the film ends at the perfect moment where it doesn't leave you, it doesn't give everything to you in terms of like, it makes you think, so what happens now? Essentially, that is the question you're left with. So what happens now? And it's it's something they ask themselves too. You know, she tells them, well, this is what's wrong with me and then this is what's wrong with you. And then they just are sort of, okay, like, you know, just sort of, it's not like, oh, they hug and they kiss and it's, this huge romantic moment it's a very grounded like all right well now we know each other's shit so do we still go for it you know that yeah. that kind of question which i think it's a much more intriguing and mature question to ask at the end of this film because then you're left wondering well actually 
is it going to work now? But also, well, now they have a better chance of working things out because, as you mentioned before, the suggestion that having her having her erase Joel fifteen times, like in the original script, in the course of fifty years, shows that she's repeating. They're repeating the same mistakes over and over because they're not learning from it because their memories are being erased. Mm-hmm. But now that they're aware of what those mistakes were that caused them to make that procedure, that could only make them more aware of that going forward that might give them a chance to have a healthier relationship or a more successful relationship. Yeah, the, this ending is much more than simply saying we're going to just get rid of the the 50 years in the future part. It's a completely different perspective on how the story ends. Mm-hmm. In the final version, there is a second chance for both of them. Yep. That second chance comes from the fact they know where they could potentially go. In the future one, maybe they get that second chance and it it didn't work out and they erased each other again, so therefore back to square one. Mm-hmm. And then they just keep re-encountering each other, starting up that relationship again, and then it falls apart. Yeah. But yeah. obviously they're destined in some way to be together and that's why they keep coming back towards each other. At least I think within the the ideas of the story, at least, that there is a sense of destiny. Yes. There's an interesting scene towards the end in the the written version where they are about to sleep together for the first time after re-encountering each other. And she says something, Clementine says something along the lines of, it's okay, you've seen me naked plenty of times before. And the the note within the text is, Joel looks at her and it's obvious he's never seen her naked before. I like that. that that's the reality. Even though they, they know they should know each other, they don't. It, the memories have been erased or are lingering in the deepest reaches of their unconscious right. at this point. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's a. Uh, so they can't just start uh, it up again either. They. No, because they're yeah. they're actual strangers. They have no context with each other. They might have like an inkling or a sort of connection that's there, but they're strangers. They're complete strangers. And I think, yeah, like I was just left with that. I guess I felt the ending was more positive watching it again before it was just like well will they get together or not and then you have the and the the last scene or the last shot of the film is them running through the beach in the cut it's like it cuts like five times it's repeating that same sequence like five times which to me suggests oh they're gonna do it again you know they're gonna go through the same thing and do it again and do it again and like this kind of and but it's very subtle like you can honestly Mm -hmm. read into it whatever you want to read into it um but now i have that perspective of like well maybe now things are a little bit better for them because they're aware of their bullshit and now you they're deciding to try it anyways based on their their reaction at the very end one of the things that is most contentious in the first version is Mary, when she reveals to the people who have had their memory removed that it's happened to them, she sends out letters to all of them explaining with their tapes. In in that initial version, Kaufman seemed to be envisioning that everyone would find out about things and many people had been to this clinic to 
remove very traumatic memories. So there's a woman who had been raped, a soldier who had witnessed atrocities in the war, things like that. And then these people are fought, and Mary herself, who had had an abortion in that first version, forced to then revisit those memories that they don't even know they have being mm. having this revealed to them so reliving it essentially yeah instead um, of having been processing that pain and mary mentions and i am very glad they took this dialogue out as well but she she mentions she's obsessed with quotes in right. all the versions of the bartlett's. story but the bartlett's quotes right uh but one of the quotes that luckily i think was removed is that she says that without memory we're condemned to repeat the past and that that has too many connotations with things like the Holocaust, with atrocities, genocides, mm. wars, all of these things, where there's that question of, well, do we forgive and forget? Do we try and move on? Do we always try and hold that memory alive? Which is the general yeah. consensus in the West, at least, is that when there is a traumatic event, you you keep the memory of it alive and then try and move on from it as opposed to insisting it never happened, trying to forget it. And I just think that maybe brought the story... It it took it out of the realm of Joel and Clementine's romance and trying to make it about humanity. And spoon-feeding that idea, which Mm. you can still ponder based on the story we have now. Yeah, it's, it's like if you want to think about it in those terms, you might get there, but it seems like for the purposes of the story, for just the story of Joel and Clementine... Eternal sunshine of the spotless mind. It doesn't need to be there. It, yeah, we don't need to yeah. really question every aspect of forgetting memory. And I think that really got the script to work. In the end, was just narrowing it down to the six or seven characters, considering yeah. that Naomi was uh, removed from the film version. Right. The script right. functions with about seven characters. Yeah, it's almost like making the scope smaller to make the question much more profound. Because if you're trying mm-hmm. to paint on a larger canvas, then you're going to kind of lose its its impact because you're kind of spoon-feeding it. And it, you're not sort of inspired to talk about it. Like you say, you eventually will get to those themes if you really have a deepened conversation with someone. Like, you know, what are the repercussions of erasing memories and then you might end up in that conversation but you will get there organically as opposed to the film saying like think about this for now so as closing notes really what did we learn from this screenplay what did we learn from this screenplay well i one question i had always was like how long did it take him to from the original concept to you know fleshing it all out i think he had started this in 98 and that's about six years before the film came out. Um, but he wasn't just working on this film. He, he had, he was working on a constant other film. So it wasn't. Yeah. And there were some big productions, yeah. uh, including adaptation in this timeline. Yeah. Exactly. So there was, there's no real, I didn't get a, at least in my research, I didn't get a concrete answer as to how long it took for him to to write the script. It's interesting how Memento came out in the time he was writing yes. it as well, and that scared the studio a bit. Yeah, he even mentioned he was kind of like backing away from it, but they mm-hmm. had to kind of, I don't know if it was Michel Gondry or whoever it was that kind of like kind of it's inspired him to keep going. And it, this isn't Memento. They're both oh, they're completely different. Distinct, different. Yeah. distinct films and... We we actually see this a lot in Hollywood anyway, where you'll have two very similar films come out 
yes. around the same time. Yeah. Either out of coincidence or because a certain idea had been chopped around mm-hmm. and then one studio passed but tried to carry the same idea and the other one took on the original idea and the, these two films come out at the same time. But that that isn't the case with this Memento. They're both right. completely distinct. Um, they're completely different. And then that has to do with what the what the actual story is i mean yes uh it's about erasing memories but to me that's second to it's just a very simple love story it's about these two characters it's really about these two social misfits who uh, you know are kind of meant to be there with each other that are meant to be together and everything else is just a tool to tell that story at least that's how i see it i agree i think they can be together as opposed to are meant to be, I, I still think they need to open their eyes and their ears. Right. Clementine, for example, if she's just crashed the car when she's drunk, she can <laughs> stubbornly insist that he's yeah. just a buzzkill. And Obviously, they have their issues, but I think with, I, I don't know, for me personally, I do believe you're destined to meet certain people in your life. I think, I don't know, I, don't, I can't describe it. I can't provide uh, concrete data to back me up other than... I just feel that way, that I feel like you are just meant to meet certain people in your life. and um, A lot of people agree with that concept, and I think that's how this... We, we will always project some information that we have mm-hmm. prior to going into watching a film. Of course, yeah. So I think that really helped with this, this yeah. screenplay in particular, is that most of us, at least in the world of film, even if there are some people who won't believe about it in the real world, they'll think... Well, in film, it's different, or in stories, it's different. People are, there is a sense of destiny yes. in that world. And so they become a defining couple for us. Isn't it? Joel and Clementine, they they become an iconic couple. Yeah, and, and there's just something about the film that's so comforting for me. Whenever I watch it, uh, I just feel like, I don't know, I just feel like, uh, I don't even know how to put it into words. I just feel like I'm in my good place. When I first saw it, I just remember... Not understanding everything, but being so intrigued by the entire thing. And I think it's also just like the performances and the music and the way it all comes together that I just feel so inspired every time I watch it. There's always a tiny little detail I hadn't noticed before. And that to me is invaluable in a film for the film to do that, that you can go back and watch. And like Charlie Kaufman says, you know, trying to build a different experience. To me, that's that's something very special. And yeah, just like the whole... I think I can identify with both Joel. Funnily enough, I can identify with both Joel and Clementine. I think I feel like I have a little bit of both and I can be both. So I, I there's a part of me that deeply resonates with, with them as characters and their story, um, which is why I think it's my favorite film. Is that why you dyed your hair blue for this episode? Yes. And I'm <laughs> going to change it to orange tomorrow. Oh, that was the other thing too. I was trying to chronologically think like, well, how often did she change her hair? Um, and based on the clues, because uh, she changes very quickly from... It's green when they first meet. Yes. And then she changes it to, to red. To red. And then from red, the red is the longest period. Mm-hmm. And then she changes and it to... And that's why he gives her the nickname Tangerine. Tangerine, yes, uh, yeah, which then falls flat when Patrick is imitating her. Yeah, very because cringy. he has just tried to steal 
yeah. the nickname without knowing where it came from. And because she has blue hair at this point. Yeah, when she uh when she meets Joel again after the procedure, her hair is blue. And she goes from red to orange. And orange is like a few months before the, the blue. I don't know why. I just felt like I, I wanted to kind of like think that in my head. Like how often did she change her hair? So, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, takeaways from me. Taking a theme and exploring every aspect of it is going to really help with writing a story. Yeah. If you're going to explore memory, memory is a really wide concept. We're, we're talking about who are the people inside our memories? Do we remember events exactly as they happened, or are we choosing to remember them a certain way? This comes up a lot when Joel remembers repressed memories from his infancy, from his childhood. Those, yeah. it, that's where all of the originality in this screenplay comes from. It, it's from taking it outside the scope of what the story has to be about to what it could be about. There's no need to have all of his repressed memories because we're really talking about him erasing Clementine. Mm -hmm. But by doing so, we get to learn mm. so much more about him, how he became the way he was, who he is, how he identifies as a person, all of this stuff. So I think that part of it is really, really important. Having those those themes, having different sides to it, having characters exploring the darker sides of the theme, Howard and Patrick dis right. exploring those dark sides, having Mary and Joel as... Joel and Clementine. No, sorry, I do mean Mary in this sense. I mean, oh. Mary and Joel as the, the victims, in a way, gotcha. of, of, gotcha. The, of the memory right. erasures. Joel especially, where it's mid-process, that so he decides he doesn't want to do it after all. And we get the sense that maybe that happened to other people, to yeah. Clementine, too. Of course. When, when those memories are right in front of you and you realize... For every hundred bad memories you could erase, there's going to be one that's so precious to you you'd rather die than lose it. Something mm -hmm. like that. Mm -hmm. And that is what it's all about. It, it gives us a reason to appreciate life, appreciate relationships, appreciate the things that happen to us because yeah. those memories become sacred. And we see that when we're with Joel and he's about to lose something, the happiest memories he has of his time with Clementine and is about to be taken away from him, we realize what that cost really is. It's not the cost of losing the bad memories. It's about the cost of losing the good ones. Yeah, that totally, I totally get that from the, from the film too. And I think that's the, the, from a screenwriting perspective, that's really coming from being laser focused on your characters and experiencing all those themes through through that instead of trying to generalize as i think we've touched upon in the original script and and this script um yeah character driving the the story as opposed to the other way around mm. i think it's a good lesson i think for screenwriting yeah kaufman's voice comes through a lot as well mm -hmm. i think in terms of the there's a very new york intelligentsia feel to a lot of it the, mm -hmm. the little quotes he drops in there's a sense that this is also a combination of of knowledge and research that is beyond just how to write a screenplay how how do you write characters that interact well with each other he's dropping in lots of ideas and concepts for us to play around with as, yeah. as an audience yeah love it i think this was a great episode and thank you to 
to everyone who's listening okay. and for continuing to support us. Yeah, this has been, I think, great going back and and reviewing it and watching it for the millionth time. And um, thank you guys so much for, for listening. Again, uh, I think these podcasts are better if, you know, you read the script beforehand and it's fresh in your mind because, you know, we do kind of jump all over the place. We don't necessarily follow a structure, but reading the script beforehand and watching the film as we do, I think will make you have the most... Um, the best experience and get the most out of these podcasts so just as a little advice great and we'll be back in two yes. weeks